0: I'm Christopher. <laughs> no, I'm Eric, and Christopher is apparently trying to be very creepy today.
1: I was I? thought was, was it well, creepy? I'm, Hi. I'm Christopher. Hi,
0: I'm Christopher. Yeah, I guess it would probably, maybe not for people at home, but... It was the facial expression that did it? Was the, the, the look it. that you gave me when you said it, that sort of... Arch Paul Lind, um, <laughs> Paul Lind. Oh um, no. If he was a
1: serial killer, look. Do you want to hear my horrible Paul Lind story? It's not my story because I wasn't there. Is I it, never this met. The airplane Paul. story. Yes. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that story. <laughs> hear that story. <laughs> That's a All terrible right. story. But the, and the myth, the urban legend around Paul Lind's death that he died with a prostitute, and, and I don't think he did, or maybe it was Charles Nelson Riley. Oh my remember. God,
0: poor Paul Lind. I brought this man up, and we're just gonna try. <laughs> Every made up, who knows whether it's true, unverifiable story. It's
1: me trying to shug, shug off any comparison to Paul Lind. I don't want to be compared to Paul. No, I'm just kidding. Paul Lind was very no, funny was and very th- talented.
0: But he could also have that kind of arch. Kind Hi, of Paul I'm Lin. Paul
1: Lind. Nah. <laughs> That's my Paul Land impression. <laughs> yeah. and okay, again, nothing like Paul Land. Nothing like Paul Lind. Um, and nothing like what we're gonna say. So we wanted to let's open with this because we we did absolutely no prep work for this episode, other than watching the documentary we're gonna talk about as part of our our, our feed our new feature that we're trying out here at Christopher and Eric, which is Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. And if you like it, we'll keep doing it. And if you don't like it, we may keep doing it anyway. Go fuck yourself. It's our <laughs> podcast. But
0: maybe we won't. Like we're open to other, but this was sort of an idea of something that we could all participate in together, you included. So we what happens is we watch a documentary or a 48 hours or a Uh, Dateline dateline or 2020 or an ID Wives with Knives episode or something. And then we all, then Christopher and I talk about it and you guys um, message us questions or ideas or thoughts that you have on the Facebook fan page. And it becomes a more sort of collective kind of thing to do. We'll see how that goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, we'll see. If, here's if you all
0: hate it and we get bored with it, we'll move on. But we both are really big fans of true crime TV and, and shows. And I,
1: I think the consensus, the place that we're at, which I'll share with our listeners and subscribers, because I'm sure you're all subscribing to the new podcast, Right. Um, is that we feel like we just really need to pick some more cheerful true crime documentaries. Well, because some trashier, <laughs> more sort of
0: fun t- t- true crimes. These two have been really... Heavy. The The descriptions, if you read the descriptions, you'll see why we fell for them, because it was really like, oh my God, that sounds really... But, But both of these, the first two ones that we have done have been less investigative and more... A sort of retelling of a, this a re- horrible...
1: A retelling with a, with a kind of social justice exploration in both of them. In the last episode, we talked about a documentary called Southwest of Salem, uh, which is the story of the San Antonio Four, who were four lesbians who were unjustly accused of horrible sexual abuse against children and were, spoiler alert, exonerated quite recently, but after spending most of their adult life in prison behind bars, despite proclaiming their innocence at every turn. So, we talked about that, and the, the, it touched on a lot of issues that were very personal to us as gay people and gay people who've been falsely accused of crimes over the years. And then, what we're going to talk about in this episode, Bayou Blue, is the story of serial killer Ronald Dominic, who raped and murdered 23 men in southeastern Louisiana between the years 1997 and 2006. Obviously, you know, this pulled my attention because uh, we're both from South Louisiana. I had never heard of this case. Some of the murders that were involved in this case happened not long after. Well, I was, my family was still there. My mother still lived there. And uh, can you just stop making clicking sounds? (laughs) I'm kidding because your facial reactions to the noises you're making are like more severe than the actual noises. So I'm having this experience of you (laughs) dropping shit while I'm trying to talk about horrifying serial killings. Here at Christopher and Eric, anyway, I was just teasing make all the noises you want. I will, thank <laughs> you. The podcast <guess> is 50% <laughs> yours. You can walk away with 50% of this white dining table at any given moment. Thanks so much. Um, I was saying, uh, let me go back to trying to be serious. Um, the killings involved in this story started while I was still in Louisiana a lot of the time, and I never heard about any of them. And, and they're, they're like two sets. Of this guy's murders, uh, some of them happened in Jefferson and Orleans Parish, which are more urban, populated areas. Jefferson Parish is really suburban New Orleans. Right. Um, if you watched the horror of Katrina unfold on live on national television, Thank God, you I still can't saw a lot of helicopter footage of Jefferson Parish. Parts of it were flooded. I think Lakeview, which was very flooded, was is in Jefferson Parish, or maybe it overlaps. So I was shocked that I didn't know anything about about these killings. Um, and so, the, and that it's a gay serial killer, and is one of, they say, one of the most prolific serial killers in history, 23 victims raped and murdered. Um, Just unbelievable. So I don't mean to be glib about it when I say I want more cheerful true crime documentaries, because I don't, but there is, what you're saying is very valid. There's there's the documentary that invites you in to become like an investigator. There's the... Um, the Murder Squad basically which is a new podcast with Paul Holes and and um Oh, God, am I going to call him Steve Jensen and his name is Phil Jensen? I'm getting his name wrong. We follow each other on Twitter. They they were instrumental in catching the Golden State Killer, and they now have a podcast where they ask their listeners, they give you rules about how to conduct yourself as a citizen investigator, but they ask you to go out and say, search this database. Like, for instance, I listened to one that was about the I-5 Strangler, and they said, we're trying to, we think he lied about how many victims he was responsible for, so we're trying to find missing person cases that might be attributable to him. He's in prison already. Um, So we're asking our listeners to search these databases. Don't name anybody in a public forum. That's not what we do. We work with actual investigators, all that sort of stuff. But then there's the documentary like this one, where it's like we're just going to live in it, and we're going to live in the injustice. Because I I don't want to feed you your response to this, but there was, I think the documentary didn't land too hard on why we don't know about this case, or why a lot of us don't know about this case, but I think it's pretty obvious, which is the men were incredibly poor and largely black. Almost all the victims were black and incredibly impoverished and from very rural um, cash-strapped parts of a state that's got a lot of economic problems, as we know.
0: Although, I think one of the things that they did do that I thought was interesting, and I know we're kind of getting we're ahead of ourselves, but Spoiler alert: We already told you who the murderer is. I mean, it's, um, it's in the synopsis right. on it, IMDb. It's, that's yeah. not—it's not one of those kinds of um, documentaries. Um, some of the families disputed those descriptions of the, like they were saying, the reason that this wasn't covered was that a lot of these people were homeless, and they were saying. This was their family member. They were not homeless. Yeah. Like, so I think poor, yes, rural and gay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think that necessarily also, the a lot victims of, weren't gay.
1: Right. The killer was gay, the but there was a but... dispute about which victims were gay. And I mean, you have those moments where family members say, oh, absolutely, he would never do anything gay. And it's like, that may be true. Also, people who have secret lives. Keep them secret sometimes. Yeah. You know, being on the down
0: low is being on the down low, and that can have its own, be on its own risk. But yeah, the, whatever the reason, it is astonishing that a serial killer responsible for the rape and murder of twenty three victims is not something that we all know about. Right? They, they one of the reporters, who they interviewed in the case? Who was, I guess on a local paper or more local paper. The Homa newspaper, yeah. They they said this is you know, they contacted the New York Times and said, Look, this is the here's the story and the Times wasn't interested.
1: They said it's a regional story. Yeah. A and he was like, "What story. does that mean? Uh, Twenty three victims, yeah. of serial killers. Yeah. a serial killer." Yeah, I guess. Story. So
0: was Charles Manson a regional story? I mean, and I and think there was fewer victims.
1: Some of it may just I, I, a lot. I do think it comes down to who you kill in terms of media coverage. I think I guess if you're so. killing a lot of pretty young blonde white women, you your serial killer profile goes up in the eyes of the media. And I think these were mostly black men. And some of them were gay, and I think for some reason in that moment, you know, I'm I'm gonna check the year.
0: Yeah, there was the the case of that was it, the Green River,
1: the Green River Killer. Yeah,
0: yeah. and that was that was kind of it eventually got a sort of national profile, but it was a long time because it was prostitutes, was, I,
1: right? Was and
0: people I, I think who were not who were marginalized by society to begin with, and so the fact that they were missing was
1: eh. well, you know, there's an interesting. I think it's interesting. I should stop saying things are interesting that other people might not right? find interesting. There's been an evolution in how we view sex work in this country, which I think has changed the way the Green River Killer has talked about. That there, there's almost like an attempt to – like people who feel that Vietnam veterans were treated poorly – now feel they want to do right by all veterans, regardless of how they feel about the war they were sent to fight in. Okay, there's a there's in the true crime community, it feels like there's a new desire to stop denigrating sex workers by talking about them as marginalized people, and so we're a lot of people are revisiting those cases. The um, amazing women over at My Favorite Murder, Karen in Georgia, did an episode where they talked about how these cases, the discussion of them, but also the investigation of them, was really affected by a view of, of sex workers as second-class citizens and really deserving it, and they sort of started to change the conversation in a way that I personally support. But I, I think that that is happening now for women <laughs> who are sex workers, and there's particularly there can be a kind of paternal vibe where um, male cops, when they're interviewed, can get really invested in the lost girl aspect, if you yeah. will, that they're seeing. But men... I think we still have trouble seeing men as victims in this country. I think we still have I think a lot of the and I don't mean to derail this and turn it into a conversation about the Michael Jackson case, but a lot of the difficulty the difficulty of that jury years ago in convicting in the in the major case was. It was a male victim. And I remember feeling at the time, we are not thinking of young boys in the same way that we think of young women.
0: Well, there's my favorite example is always that I, I can't take credit for it. I think it was a reporter with the L.A. Times who said that if it was the Menendez sisters and not the Menendez brothers, that there would be a statue of them in Beverly Hills and they yeah. would be married and living their lives and comfortable and not in prison yeah. for murdering the the parents who molested and and tortured them through their their childhood i Mm -hmm. I still think that is one of the most astonishing um verdicts ever i I, they did kill them i I don't think that's in dispute but like god
1: well i mean in the thing again the menendez brothers trial the thing if you don't know if you aren't familiar with the case there were two trials right the first trial was a mistrial Am I correct in that? I didn't do a lot of homework I, on Menendez because I didn't. Know we're was not
0: talking going. about it today. I can't remember, but they, but they were not convicted, whatever it, the case was, for whatever reason. But they included yes. the information about the fact that they were being um, raped and and uh, sexually abused by their father.
1: And the testimony, if you watch it today, is very difficult not to believe like if it is a performance it is a they are oscar winning performance, performance. Yeah. they're they are shobbing and stuttering uh, shuddering excuse me and describing it in detail in the second trial all of that was you excluded as you just said and uh, Then they just murdered their
0: parents, which is still true. I mean, it's true in both trials, but if you leave out the fact that their parents, they were actually in fear that their parents might kill them because they might reveal that they were complicit in this um, ongoing sexual abuse of these children, like, I don't know that that's even a rational thought, but who's expecting that of children who have been subjected to that? And the fact that those two young men are still in prison, uh, I just think is really astonishing. And I think it plays into... The, the fact that you as you say that that yeah there is a there is definitely seeing men as victims in our culture is is more challenging to us because we have an expectation of um of men not being that i, I think men are sometimes maybe even more reluctant to report crimes that they have been subjected to because they don't see themselves as victims i know i've had some of those experiences myself <laughs>
1: right, I, I think it's really hard for I have not had I've not experienced anything on the level of my God of what these the, the victims of Ronald Dominique were put through hmm. um of course not. Well, but,
0: you'd be dead
1: yeah, I'd be dead, although and we as we get into the arc of the documentary, we can talk about this, I was a little confused about the one who got away. I was a little confused the one who eventually they they interview a guy who or it didn't progress with him right he was the he was the parolee who had to report to the parole officer and he told a story this so ultimately guy picked the me key in. to catching yeah, the guy i was I, that that I, I lost the thread with him because i think he was so upset and he he, he wasn't i think he was high do you think he was I altered i think he
0: was on heroin or some opioid he was yep. nodding out during his own interview there was I would say one of the things that struck me about this particular um, uh, documentary was, did did nobody tell them that a camera crew was coming? Mm -mm. Like the clothes that these people were wearing, the places, the locations that they were shot, the conditions in which they were found was like, okay. It was really fascinating, both this and the one we saw last week. There is no narration.
1: Yeah, it is just
0: in the words of the families and, um, and the victims. It's a very, it is a moving and profound way to tell the story. It very much departs from, the, the uh, Dateline kind of format Absolutely. of having somebody narrate you through it, and Keith Morrison say, you know. But guess what happened next?
1: <laughs> right, exactly. And then you, you can't
0: wait to find out what happens next. There's none of that. It's just these very sort of, oh my God, that woman, the um, Pellegrin. Which one? The the woman with who wore the. The friend, she and her daughter are sitting. Oh, it looks like on the porch. Guidry,
1: I think, was her last name. I, it wasn't her last name, Guidry, well, but the, she was the, Pellegrin's son mother. Was yeah, Pellegrin. yeah the, Ron the young, Pellegrin was the son. Yeah, yeah,
0: that was. Oh my God, she yeah. was. She was amazing. She yeah. really. She transported me back to oh my god that part of the world. It really hearing was like hearing the voices, going back. Yeah. hearing the sounds.
1: At, this was like I wanted to hold up this documentary. That this is what Louisiana accents actually sound like. It, if I, if you're a dialect coach working in Hollywood and you're making your Louisiana characters sound like East Texas twangers or side, know, tidewater aristocracy, right? Exactly. It is not
0: that. It is these people. There is nothing southern about these accents. These it were music, various
1: really. gradations of a Cajun accent. Really, is what it was you I could guess. hear the cajun it it's sounded it's
0: louisiana to me. tone of voice right. everybody yep. from the police officers to the da to everybody involved but she was she was the best she yeah. was the most archetypal of everybody and maybe probably the most passionate yeah um person that they interviewed I, anyway i suppose we should sort of get into the story one well, of the things I, we we want to try and do with this is if you haven't seen it we want to kind of talk our way through it so that you get a sense of what um of what of the story that we're talking about right. well, we hope you have so that you have opinions of your own and mm-hmm. we hope that next time we do this there will actually be um Contrib- they'll actually be your contributions. Yeah, absolutely. To be included in. The- we have
1: a Facebook page. It's the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. If you're familiar with our other show, um, and that is where we solicit your opinions and your comments and your thoughts, and we will be posting every new episode that we do here. So,
0: and at the end of tonight's episode or today's episode, <laughs> today's, or this afternoon, we're, not, we're episode, not live anymore. Whatever, <laughs> um, we uh, we will have details of what the next true crime TV club. Uh, episode will be about so that you'll have the chance to um, watch along with to actually watch. Yeah. We've done these first two and sort of as an experiment so that you can see to really didn't get the chance to participate. So don't feel like, don't feel bad.
1: No, absolutely. <laughs> but
0: next time you should probably have the chance to, to watch before we actually um, converse. So we'll be able to include your thoughts and comments as we go along.
1: Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, um, the do- I, I think this is helpful. I don't mean to get ahead of the story, but as we talk about the structure of the documentary, what they do in lieu of a voiceover is they have interview tapes with the killer, which they begin playing from the very beginning of the documentary, and you aren't quite... I wasn't quite sure that that's what I was hearing. I thought when it started that I was hearing maybe a potential victim, and... He is telling you basically the locations in this very rural, isolated part of Louisiana, which is close to Houma, which is um, not what I would describe as a big city, but is a town of some size. Yeah, Bayou size. Blue is an
0: actual place. Bayou Blue
1: is an actual place, and you realize that he's describing areas where murder, at- atrocious murders and rapes happened, and bodies were dumped. And so you're not—it's not—you're not clear from the beginning that you're hearing the killer, but that is the reveal as you go along that you're hearing the
0: killer. And the recordings were apparently made inside a sardine I can just, that was falling
1: down the side of a cliff. And if this was the evidence that was submitted at trial of uh, it was that poor quality, I don't know how that, you well, know.
0: Honestly, ultimately, well, we'll get to we'll you. get into
1: it. We always jump it. This is part of learning how to synopsize so that we can discuss. Um, so this is how it opens. Um a lot of shots of Louisiana, and I think there was a similar choice stylistically made in Southwest of Salem, which was to establish the community through a series of interviews before even getting into what the case is or what the case is about. Though I
0: will say the shots of South Louisiana were more beautiful and arresting yeah. than anything, any of the footage that was used in Southwest of Salem. That's that was true. not yeah. a beautiful show.
1: No, it was not. It was, it was bleak. Um So... This is pretty bleak, too, but
0: there was some better footage.
1: So they're talking about what life is basically like in this part of Louisiana. They're also alluding to the fact that whatever they're discussing has to do with the fact that the double whammy of hurricanes Rita and Katrina impacted the case that we're about to see, impacted the investigation of the case that we're about to see. Slowed it down. Slowed it down. And
0: perhaps caused more victims to be victims because they weren't able to— Catch the guy in time,
1: and maybe also played a role in how the media ultimately portrayed this case. If everybody, if all the news stories people wanted about Louisiana at that time were about hurricane recovery, you could see why nobody was doing a deep dive on yeah a, a, a series of serial killings like this. So Although
0: one of the points they made was that Hurricane Katrina and then the what was the name of the Horizon?
1: Oh, Deepwater Horizon. Deepwater, right. That
0: those two things were actually. Out, things that began to cause there to be more national coverage of this particular part of the world. Yes. They were saying there wasn't much na- much appetite for news from this area of the right. world at all.
1: Unless people were talking about coastal erosion, which is something that gets touched on at the end of the documentary in a way that I was sort of like, why are we talking about this all of a sudden? But that it, that is really... The only time I remember the rest of the country talking about that part of yeah. the state, even as somebody who lived pretty close by, it was, you know, it's disappearing. The wetlands that are vanishing are largely in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, the foot of the state is, is more water than land. And it's always, it seemed that way for my lifetime there. So we're doing these interviews, we're meeting these people, we're not exactly being told who they are, but it becomes clear that we're talking to the family members of. Victims of the same killer, and they they don't make any bones about that. We meet the two police detectives first. We meet a police detective who I think I sort of lost him in the long arc of the case. He was the bald guy who yeah, basically drove. They, they us
0: began with with finding the bodies, right. There was finding the locations. I think it was a way of trying to bring you into the part, the region of the world where the bodies were found. Right. And it was, they began later in their own story. It was the bodies that were being found um, in and around Homa. Mm-hmm. And there, And then it became clear as we progressed that actually this was later in the serial killer's story. Um, milieu, yeah. that they they had started in New Orleans and it, there had been and so it was a part of it was about the two investigations coming together and realizing that it was all the same guy
1: and this is where I got confused did you feel like anybody they interviewed represented the New Orleans side of the investigation because I didn't I felt like I, when they revealed later that there were all these there were all these murders in Orleans and Jefferson that they thought were tied. To these murders out in Terrebonne Parish, it was like, "Where are the New Orleans investigators?" I, I mean, thought
0: that the guy, there was that man and the woman who became representative. Yeah, I thought that the guy was New Orleans and okay, that she was bad. Terrebonne. That she was um, maybe so,
1: I mean, Homa. I mean, that yeah. she was
0: more that direction, but it was it was a task force. It was it. Was, they made it clear that it was that it was a concerted effort of yeah. a number of different agencies, the sheriff's department in Terrebonne Parish, and than maybe more uh, New Orleans. Because it, it and Orleans seemed and,
1: like the trial, when they finally got there, again, jumping ahead a little bit, was very Terrebonne Parish because they were talking to the Terrebonne Parish yeah, DA. Yeah. Okay. So that that's sort of like was. That they you
0: know, came and presented
1: evidence there that the bodies were also included. But so really. Bo- right. So the disappearances were from Orleans and Jefferson, but the bodies were all in Terrebonne Parish. But Is the, that what I missed? The
0: conviction was for the eight victims in yeah. Terrebonne. Yeah. That's what they actually were focusing on and that there were 23 more and ultimately, well, we'll again get into that, but like that that was why they were um that was why they were focused there because that was how they they got him.
1: Right, right. And
0: in Louisiana they pointed out I didn't know that if you are can get a life sentence in Louisiana, that's it. Mm-hmm. There is no parole, there is no appeal. Life sentence in Louisiana is they mean it. Yeah. For life. You're in. Yeah. And so, yuck.
1: Yeah. It was rough. It was rough. It was everything it was about rough. it was rough. It was everything rough. was
0: about. It. One of the things that I was that I was struck by as they began to develop these pictures of um the victims, which was mm-hmm. how they really explored this, and they were interviewing their families and they were talking about them. I kind of began to have the feeling that while they might have not been formally sex workers, that these were people who were willing to have, because a lot of them were not identifying as gay. Right. But that maybe they were being, um, they were people who were willing to may overlook that yeah. for uh, financial considerations.
1: Or, or drugs. Gay so for it, pay. It sounded like gay for pay, but also they were being offered drugs. Well, clearly or the being guy offered who got a woman. Yeah, The
0: the guy who got away, that was a really interesting story. That he, What he was basically saying was, he was approached by somebody who showed him a picture of a woman and said, mm-hmm. if you'd like to have sex with her, come with me. They went to some isolated location, probably that trailer. Right. And he said, okay, well, she was been... She's been attacked, and so she's very afraid. And so in order to have sex with her, you first have to—we'll have to tie you up so that Mm -hmm. she'll feel safe to come out so that you can have sex with her. And he said, oh, hell no.
1: Hell no. I'm
0: not doing that. And that was ultimately what saved his life Mm -hmm. because one of the things that was mystifying the investigators was how this person was able to overpower— all of these people who he killed it was they were not you know a bunch of uh lightweights this no. was some substantial men um who were being uh, raped and murdered and they they were being they were astonished that they were able to that whoever this was was able to get the drop on them in such yeah. a way that he could do this and and it was apparently a series of different... There wasn't one particular way. It mm-hmm. began to evolve as they began to tell the story that there were a number of different ways, and one of them was this strange sort of approach to straight men who... through, Would you like to have sex with this woman? Right. She would... But she's afraid, and you have to consent to being tied up. And, and, was, and then, the, the, how do you fall for that? I, thing,
1: you think you have to be so drunk already? I mean, that was the thing too. Like, you must have targeted people who were pretty intoxicated to begin with, who but, would think that was a good idea, and also maybe be easier over overpower. And then they juxtaposed it
0: with the the recorded testimony of, as it turned out to be, the murderer. Yeah. Who was saying that he was afraid that they were going to hurt him?
1: But I mean, and here's the thing, and here was where the mislead kind of worked for me, which is I've watched a lot of true crime documentaries, watched a lot of stuff about serial killers, some of its research for the Burning Girl series that I write. Um, I don't remember a serial killer breaking down and blubbering quite the way this guy did. Like, I don't, I, they usually reach a point of sort of acquiescence, but also they can get to a place of arrogance and pride as they describe their accomplishments but this guy was blubbering miserably while admitting to and describing the details of these crimes which allowed the filmmakers to trick me into believing I was hearing an interview with a victim when it first began
0: well he I think saw himself as a victim in many ways it was a very strange sort of justified kind of um, he was a a serial killer but from crimes of opportunity more Mm -hmm. than from some sort of insidious we have the the tendency to depict the sort of hannibal Lecter yes world of serial killers and i think maybe that's not as true as as no. uh crime fiction would um would like us to be believe they're just criminals and they're not necessarily geniuses or clever or anything else they just have managed to um slip between the cracks i, I don't know i i think it 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 forms uh, an interesting sort of point of departure for this particular um, serial killer
1: story. Absolutely, I think that the Hannibal Lecter effect is um, sort of like the CSI effect. They said after the show CSI became popular, (laughs) juries were expecting expecting to be presented with vast digital. Maps of entire chromosomes, and if they weren't, they were like, "Why are you just showing me this slide of a of a footprint?" You know, it was actually <laughs> fucking with the jury, the trial process. But I think the Hannibal Lecter effect is also very true. I think I, our friend
0: Jan Burke came uh-huh. on and talked about that on on dinner party show. Yes. We did our favorite murders. We actually did our favorite murders. We on.
1: we did. Well, we had Marsha Clark on that episode too, and and I was going to call them wacky murders, and she was like. Really? Whack? You're going to have me on, and it's going to be a wacky murder? I was like, okay, crazy deaths, I think, is what we ended up calling it, because there was one by a llama that yeah. we can't really call a, a, a murder because the llama slipped on ice and became excited and to see its, owner, its own and owner and <laughs> fell on the owner, and the owner died of a heart attack. It was just an awful llama story. But anyway, different. And different. Another dreadful, <laughs> in a, in another,
0: another tragic llama story.
1: <laughs> in another universe from Bayou Blue, which is what we're talking about on this episode. Which is a much more tragic, a much more tragic story. But yeah, I think that the serial killer is a desperate, pathetic opportunist, is really a more prevalent and accurate depiction of what serial killers are like for the most part.
0: And th- this guy was afraid of the people. Yeah. Like he was tying them up. He was like he was killing them because he was afraid that if he untied them, because he had raped them once he got them tied up, he raped them. And I think he was afraid that if he untied them, they'd kill him.
1: Yeah. Which I think was a very real concern. I think that's a very real concern. Yeah. I, um, am...
0: I think they would not have been happy with him. The guy who got away from him was the guy who wouldn't let let them tie him up. And the, he was ultimately the key to them catching him. Right. Because he got away and, and told his parole officer when once he began to hear about some of the other people from the area that from the Bayou Blue area or HOMA area. Mm-hmm. who had been found, the bodies that had been found, he thought, you know, I bet it was this crazy guy.
1: And this part of the documentary that chilled me to the bone was their description of one, I think it was the two cops went to the um, one of the dump sites. Like there was a little area where he would go and there was a mini storage facility, a church, <laughs> which is great, um, and just nothing else around it. And they said, if he got you here... Nobody could hear you scream. But if you were just a little ways over, they could probably hear you scream in town. So he, you yeah. Know, as they the,
0: said it's two miles. Yeah. Like the two miles, and you're in this incredibly isolated place, and two miles away, everybody in town would have heard you because you'd have been right on Main Street, yeah. been right by the police station.
1: Yeah, that was chilling. I will say the other thing that leaped out at me, this is like a side note, is the evident discomfort of the male police officer when he was trying to not to characterize the sexual orientation of the victims and it's a new phrasing that you hear people use where he's like I-, I didn't know if they were gay or bi or whatever it's that whatever that sneaks in at the end that makes it sound like in their head they want to say gay or bi or stupid drag queen I don't know I don't care whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own it just it makes my skin crawl just a little bit I missed that I just remember him,
0: his use of of describing people as bisexual. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, it wasn't clear to us whether or not these people were bisexual or not. I yeah. remember him saying that and thinking, okay, well, I guess we can go with that. But it was, I don't think it was clear that a lot of them identified as gay. There was the one where they interviewed his grandmother and I guess it was his mom. I'm not sure. I don't they
1: think so. I like think they seemed like they were going to have a fight
0: with each other. Yeah. Um, during those were, That was
1: where the two people who went to the cemetery. Yeah. And that, Which that was, was another with yeah. the dog. That and was no another headstone. strange,
0: like, why are we going to the cemetery? It was a yeah. very strange sort of discussion. But one of the things that they raised, one of the points that the grandmother raised was it had only been a day. How was there no meat on his bones? How he was, was he in this state when they found him already um, mm-hmm. Why? How was he this degraded mm. by the time they got to him? She was. There was some real questions raised by yeah. um, the 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 victims' families. They were not as happy as you would think. They were delighted with. Um, there was there was a real division between yeah um, the the two groups over whether or not um, he should get a life sentence or whether or not he should get
1: the death penalty. The death
0: penalty. Right. But again, we we. Advance
1: to. Well, really, look, there's not much, and I don't mean to diminish the documentary, but what the documentary does is it basically takes you through. The discovery of these bodies, the knowledge that there's a killer out there, and then the apprehension of the killer happens pretty damn quickly. And you reveal that the interview you've been hearing is, in fact, Ronald Dominique. Although, to be fair, crime.
0: it was not all that quickly in real time. Right. He was a killer for years.
1: Right. I mean quickly in the course of the documentary. But in the, the course of
0: the documentary, yeah. they identify him fairly rapidly through this the testimony of this guy who got away. And then they... They bring him in. How did they?
1: God, I'm trying. That's the part I'm trying to remember. See, for me, it it felt like the new. dragged
0: out to the. the Right. He had
1: a quote unquote heart attack the day before and so needed to be assisted. And it looked like from. Well, the cops had these expressions on their faces of like, we have to play along with the charade because if we don't, we'll be seen to be abusing this suspect. And so we're going to be as compassionate and considerate as we can appear to be while the cameras are rolling but we really think this guy fucking did it and we don't don't, we're tired of helping him as he limps along out of the police station Um, that happened it seemed like I know I keep going back to this it seemed like there was a New Orleans piece missing because in the in the structure of the documentary they go to New Orleans and they go oh we've had these disappearances in New Orleans and then we hear his interview and he's visiting a lot of bars that I used to go to very frequently which freaked me the fuck out I will say there was one bar that I didn't go to that frequently, which is the one they held on the longest, which I I didn't show the name. But it used to be called Rawhide. I don't know if it is anymore. And it has a golden pole in the middle of it and these swinging red doors. And if the windows were blacked out and it was one of those places where if you pass through those front doors, it was sort of an anything goes situation. It was very dark inside. And people just sort of went in to see what would happen. And so that completely creeped me out when I saw that on there. And um, again, my shock. Yeah, that was that one of that... the first
0: bodies he was describing. The you're you get you're seeing this as he's describing his encounter with one of his victims and where he dumped the body. But right. he's describing it in terms of being afraid and killing the guy because he was afraid that the guy of the guy hurting him.
1: It's almost like in his own twisted mind, he thought, "I'm justified in doing this because this is the only way I can have sex." And they will hurt me or – right? It was like he saw himself – we're getting back to that idea that he saw himself as a victim. Absolutely. I have to tie them up to protect myself and then I have to kill them or else they're going to kill me. God, it just – oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Well, it was, you know, like it was a really twisted story and he was really a twisted little man. And really you could see why he had to tie them up when they – when once they reveal who he is, was not a formidable was not guy. Not formidable at all, and it was astonishing to me that he was able to talk anybody into anything. Yeah, um, it 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 kind of illustrated how degraded and perhaps ignorant his victims actually yeah.
1: were. And I I just think heavily intoxicated. Like I just, I think that's part of it too. But at the end of it, again, we're bouncing all over the place. But at the end of it, they show a board, I think for the first time, of all the people who are believed to be his victims. And it's it's a giant poster board with just these tiles of faces going down the... Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, all of those fucking... Now, this is the thing, I, I think you don't need to be really even a true crime aficionado to be in touch with this fact, but there is endless speculation about whether or not apprehended serial killers underreport or overreport their victim count. Because if they've been a successful serial killer, I'm putting that word in terrible blood dripping air quotes, um, they've hidden a lot of bodies in their time. And so, like I know for instance, I recently listened to an episode of The Murder Squad with Paul Holes and Phil Jensen, and they were talking about the I five Strangler. And the thing with the I Five Strangler, who was a serial killer who operated here in California, is they are very concerned that he has underreported the number of people that he's killed and they have actually tasked their listeners with going out and searching right. databases of whatever you know and then they have serial killers they have this one guy his name escapes me who is just confessing to he's confessed to something like 900 killings right. and they don't think it's possible he was guilty of all of them and that some of them do it for attention because if they're if they're in prison and they say I've got more to talk about they may not get a reduced sentence, but they've got cops flying in from all over to come visit them, and it can be an ego trip or whatever. So I'm curious. I didn't really walk away from Bayou Blue with a sense of whether or not they really believe firmly that all of these are his victims. It seems like the filmmakers do, which is why they showed that poster Well, board. the thing
0: that they seem to have in common was the fact that they –
1: was the was the way that he doesn't hide the bodies. He just dumps them. And that's the thing, that many bodies just dumped and nobody got him sooner. That's one of those things where it's like, that is a parish without the resources of a major city. I mean, we have problems with with resources forensically in in major cities, rooms full of rape kits that have not been tested. But that is, to me, that is a heartbreaking aspect of that you can just dump bodies like that in the swamp for that long.
0: And the families being interviewed were not— as convinced as everybody else was like the, the the grandmother Mm -hmm. was like, I don't understand this with my son. Like none of the things that you're describing here. Right. Describe this young man.
1: Yeah. She was saying, he called to
0: check in. Yeah. He said he was coming home. He actually dropped off his bicycle at the house Mm -hmm. and then went with the guy. Like, Why? Yeah. What what was that about? And then why was he in the condition that he was in when they found him when he'd only been missing for a day? Like all of those things were really – like she was not buying in. And then the, the sentencing choices in and around.
1: That's he, the thing. Right. That the DA towards the end of the documentary says all of the families were in agreement, like you were saying earlier, that they thought a life sentence without parole because there's no parole in Louisiana as we said – was better, and then they immediately cut to her, and she's like, "I did not think that."
0: Well, and that was interesting. That was on a racial divide. Yeah,
1: the, the white, was it?
0: the white mother, the mm-hmm. my favorite, Mrs. Filigren, yeah. or whatever her name was. Um, uh, but yeah, she was the one who was. She wanted him killed. She wanted the death penalty, whereas the black families. And most of the victims were
1: black. There was also Landry Watkins, am I getting his name correctly, whose brother was a victim. Right. He did not want no. the death penalty. And the
0: and the father, um, I can't remember that guy at all. The the father who was being interviewed at work.
1: Yes, I remember.
0: Um, was also not in favor. And and he said, I thought he described it the best, he said because he would suffer worse. Yeah. Like, I want him to suffer for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was
0: when they revealed that Louisiana's um, life sentence is, they mean it. Yeah. It's for life. There is no parole for a life sentence, um, mm-hmm. which I, again, found, wow, good old Napoleonic code. I mean to tell you. Louisiana's <laughs> legal system. But i it was the ruralness of it. It was the poverty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, in the midst of all of that other natural disasters and everything else, it got delayed over a long period of time. But he did, apparently, at least to the eight killings that they nailed him for, like, those were the con- the killings that he confessed to. Right. He ultimately allocuted, isn't that the,
1: Is that the word? A, a, I, like, don't know. I
0: think that was why the quality of the recordings didn't matter, because he basically said, I did it. Mm-hmm. And the, that was the, the white mother, the whatever landry or whatever her name turns out to have been um she was saying that she thought he had the he'd gotten some deal that he wasn't suffering
1: oh um, yeah the so privileges is yeah. what i think she mentioned in exchange
0: having... for confessing yeah to the crimes so that they could you know have an easy time at trial what
1: privileges do you get an angola, angola right? i mean like I angola was, is one of the most we grew up with the, the word angola could strike fear in your she wanted heart. to like see parchment, him die parchment parchment in mississippi same parchment in angola she wanted to watch him die it's like that was Quentin. what she yeah. wanted
0: it had nothing to do with there are no privileges of being there are no suites no at, at angola i There's don't think not so not a vip wing yeah. no and and they that's one of the things that the the da said it was not going to be an easy life no. for this guy At his age and his health and given everything else in Angola for the remainder of his days. They did not reveal much in the way of, which I thought was interesting. I thought, surely he's dead by now or whatever.
1: No interview. He does not get interviewed.
0: Nothing about about him or anything else. He was... I have to say... The tapes and then he's in prison. There was no... There was no font at the end saying he's currently serving his days out at Angle. There was nothing. They I didn't think say anything else about him.
1: There's an aspect of that that I like because like the the other side of the Hannibal Lecter effect is the glorification of the serial killer yeah. as a figure of mystery and mystique. And I'm not really excited about that. Yeah. And I like that the I like it when the focus is on the victims and rule who kind of an, I don't know if she's the inventor of the true crime book, but she was certainly a pioneer in the 70s and the 80s, um, would write whole books about crimes and focus almost exclusively on the victims. She wouldn't want to, because she was afraid of this. She said, we are, we are mystifying and going into the head of the serial killer and trying to make them like us. We're doing things to the serial killer that are not necessarily based in accuracy and truth, and they can have a, a deleterious effect on um, how we conceive victims and perpetrators. So, I do like it when we focus on the victims, but I could have used a, a little, little bit closure. more information about the investigation, I think, is my takeaway from And this.
0: about the status. Yeah. Like, where things were. Mm-hmm. Like, I got a sense of where the family was. He's in prison. Like, I'd have been fine with just, you know, right up on the screen, currently serving his term in... A life sentence. The thing in that they
1: did in, in South of Salem that didn't work for you because it was about the exonerated people, which was the title card at the very end, would have been perfect about Ronald Dominique. For I you didn't
0: here. need to see him. I didn't care if there was an interview him over or not. I don't right. think it would have helped me with the interview. I would love to have known more about the investigation. I felt like there were some pretty big gaps in the description of what the investigation was, but it came together in its own sort of Abrupt way, so maybe there wasn't a lot of one. Like, once the guy pointed the finger at Domini and it became clear it was him, and then he confessed, it was kind of
1: over. Yeah, it was like that interview that we kept hearing the clips of or what directed them to all the other faces on the poster board. I mean, yeah. He told
0: them chapter and verse where everything was and where he dumped them and why he dumped them there. It was that. It was his description of the body dumps that I think made it very clear. Mm Mm-hmm. What that that it, that it was all him, because one of them that one of the, the the one the murder that began next to Rawhide in New Orleans mm-hmm. ended up with that body dumped under the overpass. And that's one of the first things he describes. Mm-hmm. So I believe that it was that that convinced them that he was, in fact, responsible for all of the murders that he told them where all the bodies
1: were found. Right. Yeah. Now, there was one. I lost what happened with the body that was dumped in Kenner. Kenner, and you can make your jokes about me being from Kenner because my mother lived there briefly before she left Louisiana. Kenner is a suburb of New Orleans, but again, it's in Jefferson Parish. It's close to the airport. It's a populated area. I would
0: actually like to just as to make <laughs> the, the reason that the Kenner jokes began was because. Your business manager is in <laughs> Kenner, and so so many things that are for you are, have a Kenner address.
1: Kenner, Louisiana, but I'm not from Kenner. But it's, but,
0: <laughs> but that address is associated with your name. That's the the reason for the Kenner jokes. It's exactly. not because your mom lived there for. 25
1: minutes. 25 minutes before she came out here to join us in California, which is where she should be and as it should be. But anyway, that's a side road. Right. <laughs> tonally I don't bears no connection being, to the story. I don't what remember. Happened, he said he dumped a body in a dumpster in Kenner. Yeah. And then that was, I remember the, I was like, oh. They I'm
0: showed in. a picture of a dumpster, but the, and I guess they recovered the body. I'm not certain that they did.
1: I, I guess, you know, like some of this is me just dealing with the fact that I didn't want to believe a serial killer like this could operate that long and with impunity in my old hometown like it was one thing to believe that he could operate in isolation out in the swamp but i was like oh my god he was taking people from new orleans and jefferson paris like i never would have gotten in the car with that guy you know like i i well he wouldn't have approached you you. but i I was not his target yeah i was not not his victim profile so but jesus christ i mean it was just there are there are some cases i think that cut close to home for various reasons and it can be really disturbing to take a deep look because you think, what if, what if I went left where I went right? Or what if I'd cross paths with this guy in a in a bad situation? Or I don't know. Like we talk about this a lot when, particularly when you are so kind and generous with your time and we promote my Burning Girl books. But we talk about our identification as gay men with what women go through, with a sense of constant vulnerability. Right. And um, I think even the male side of us limits our ability to truly access how vulnerable most women feel. Like my friend, the writer, um, uh, Victoria Helen Stone, who I just did a little event with at the Ripped Bodice, she talked about going on a research trip to a certain state and just not being able to go certain places as a woman alone. It was it was it was an oil state with a lot of itinerant men around, and she's like, "No, I just wasn't. I needed to go there, but I couldn't go there alone." And it was like, "I got it. I, I, you know, like because as a gay person, I think there are some places I can't go in this shirt and feel safe, you know, or some places where I can't hold my wrist. No, I think that shirt would probably pass pretty much anywhere. This is just some old white polo shirt, but you know what I mean. Like there are certain I'll have to either pass or I'll be in danger." But women, like there's it's very they always they feel a constant sense of threat that we don't often deal with. And this was a serial killer targeting men. And like we talked about earlier with not being able to see men as victims, I felt the victimhood of these men in watching this documentary. It wasn't some detached clinical thing where I was watching Ted Bundy's talk coets,
0: also men who would not have felt vulnerable, yeah. They were not—these were people who lived in the streets. These were people who ran in the streets. For the most part, there yeah. were some rarer exceptions. But for the most part, these were men who ran in the streets. The family these said These were
1: so. not city kids who took a wrong turn into no, a co- community were they weren't familiar with. Were yeah. th- these
0: were uh, more sort of—these were not people who were feeling vulnerable.
1: And do you think part of him being— Part of that blubbery, pathetic guy that we saw in the interrogation and walking out of the station, do you think that was an aspect of what he used on these men that he seemed so diminutive? I don't think
0: they felt a threat from him. I don't just, think they saw him as a threat.
1: And that's they terrifying. may have
0: even thought that they were going to roll him. Yeah, you know, in the end, um, I don't know. Uh, but I don't I can't imagine what was in their mind, but it didn't seem that they were a people who would have felt vulnerable or B that he would have seemed he would have appeared to be a threat to them. And I think that combination turned out to be pretty lethal.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: The guy who got away from him did not seem like the person who would have gotten away from him. Yeah. Like and the reason he got away from him was that he wasn't falling for his bullshit. Right.
1: Like not he
0: did not seem physically substantial at all,
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. but he was a little more wary um, of somebody running a line of bullshit on him, and that was what saved his life,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: ultimately was the downfall of the guy. Right. But I think he picked people who didn't feel vulnerable and who, you know, it's like the the con artist thing. If you can't con an honest man, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like if you're appealing to somebody's other like. Here's a picture of somebody. I don't know. That sounds like one of those bad porn sites.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking that the, the, what is it? Bait bus.
0: Right, yeah, get on, like yeah. have sex with this woman, and then they trick them into having sex with somebody And it's else. not
1: real. It's all actors acting out this fantasy, but yeah, that's it. You you trick the straight guy into getting in the van, and then they uh, he puts a blindfold on, and when he takes it off, the gay guy's blowing. Whoa, what the fuck? I've never seen it. Never, never watched a single one. But I've heard. I've heard. I've dated guys yeah, anyway. who are way into bait bus. Um, um, yeah. Anyway,
0: so but it, it had that kind of preposterous sort of quality to it. Some yeah. of it, um, some of it, I think was about yeah, it, it, it's going to pay them for doing whatever. And
1: yeah, okay. So back to back deep dives into everything that's wrong with America, <laughs> and then injustice, social divisions, homophobia, bigotry, and uh, a South- general
0: astonishment about lack of
1: bigger coverage of... I just... It's a regional story. I, I mean, they think this guy killed 23 men. Yeah. And the New York Times says it's a regional story. I mean, that was that was blood a little dismissive. That was a little dismissive, you know. And I don't know. It doesn't look like this documentary has gotten a lot of traction. I didn't read about it. I found it through a search on the internet looking for true crime stuff on Amazon and all the streamers and the platforms where we can where stuff is widely available for all of our listeners and us to watch and talk about. So it was just sort of there. In fact, it may have been recommended to me based on the fact that I watch a lot of gay stuff and some Louisiana stuff on Amazon. So it's not like this case is now a big conversation, (laughs) you know?
0: I, I find it astonishing that no matter what I watch, everybody thinks that I should be watching... The great british baking show like <laughs> like no matter what because you watched um avengers end game you should see the great british baking show and it's like why do you guys want me to watch this
1: uh well you love british stuff and that's but, it But <laughs> that's it that's where it ends but
0: Oftentimes the connections are not based on that. Like it's uh, like hey, look, I don't here, see it, I'm gonna whatever. S- I'm However, gonna they say this. found
1: you. We wound up watching. We wound up watching. Blue very dark. Show. Because I put it on the spreadsheet. So for our next episode. We're going to, I'm not going to say we're trying for lighter because it's still true crime TV club. It's still murder. We're trying for more of a mystery where a sense of like it will be presented in such a way that we as audience members will be invited to come up with conclusions and deductions and theories and all that sort of stuff. And then by the end of the hour and a half. So we're going to do an episode of 2020. Uh, if you are out there and you want to watch before we talk about it, um, this episode is available for free on ABC's website. Um, I, I, the web link is too long for me to read. We'll post it on our Facebook page. But if you go to abcgo. dot com, that's really where you can see a lot of ABC stuff. You have to watch commercials if you watch it on the website. It, all episodes of Twenty Twenty or most of them are also available with a Hulu subscription. And we're fond of Hulu around these parts. Yes, we're
0: big, promoters, uh, of big Hulu. promoters
1: of Hulu. So. That is a way to watch it, and the episode is called With Friends Like These, and the synopsis is when a 19-year-old woman's car is found on a New Jersey bridge, a classmate comes forward with information that helps authorities discover what happened, and we picked this episode because Eric loves New Jersey.
0: I the, don't really know anything a, about New Jersey. It huge Jersey fan. To huge me. Jersey. Goes to the Jersey. Garden State, yeah, it the Garden State. It looks lovely. There's the a coast, shore. There is There's a shore. Love the beach. So, yeah, yeah. who knows? But, yeah, we just what thought that- Trenton makes, the world takes. That's about all I know.
1: Because I will say, sometimes with the 2020s and the Datelines and the 48 Hours, some of the episodes hold up people, horrible things happening to people you don't like. And I'm not talking about the murder victim. I'm talking about the cheaters who are exposed in the course of the investigation. The secret lives that crack open like eggs, and the ugly little the people who seem perfect who have the social. We're media. hoping for a little more trash. We're hoping for a little more trash. Is basically what we're saying. But um, and, and
0: something a little less and more investigatory. I want a narrator, and I want to follow the investigation, like. Who were the number? Who were the like in both of these cases? In the first ones we watched, there was no crime at all, and in the second one, it was clear who the guy was from if you read the description of the film. So there was never really any, but like, who was suspected as we you went along the way? I, I like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. These, this
0: made him seem like a good candidate, but he really wasn't a good candidate.
1: I well, my dream, if we keep doing this, and listen, if if you're listening to the podcast and you liked our first two episodes better, and you're you're you want less you want less um, featuring Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, let us know and we will consider it and maybe do it a little. We'll do it for 40 minutes of each show instead of 50. Because <laughs> um, we ultimately we have to do it. could be a
0: part of the show. But
1: it could be a part of the show and not the whole show. We are gonna we want to take your temperature on, on how you like it and whether or not it works for you. Um, but my dream, if we keep doing it, is to get... Feedback from people who are listening, who are familiar with the actual case on a on a macular or m- macular level, micro level, m- a very detailed level. That's what happens when you try to reach for macular. a big word. A mac- who, people who have macular degeneration, no, I'm sorry, don't mean that. Backing up, erasing that. Um, I would love to. I always love, because, yes, the narrator in these specials. Where are we going with this conversation, (laughs) Christopher?
0: Bring it in for a landing, babe.
1: Okay, Sid Hartha over here. Okay, hold on. They make choices, On Dateline and 48 Hours in 2020 to tell a certain version of the story that sometimes is the version they believe is true, but it's not the version that the investigators always believe is true. Like, for instance, if you watch a Dateline about a case that you know about, you will see that they have omitted whole things. They have omitted whole people like Dirty John, which went on to be a TV series. I listened to the podcast. I watched the Dateline episode, which had to condense everything down to an hour. And I'm like, where is the older sister who first became suspicious of Dirty John? Why is she not being interviewed? Why is she not appearing in this podcast? She was a character who kind of provoked him and instigated him because she knew he had something to hide. In the TV series, she goes on to be a a major force in the early episodes of that show. Why was she missing from the Dateline episode? Why make the choice to leave her out? I think all of those things are very interesting. Because I think I have talked to, we have a friend, a writer who used to edit and write these um, shows kind of more in the early days, but for like the early discovery ID. And he said we would go and research a criminal case and arrive at a completely different conclusion than Frontline did when they researched the same criminal case before because they didn't contact this person or they did and made an editorial, I'm putting air quotes, decision to leave that person out. So I think it would be really fun to talk about a, a case that our listeners are familiar with, maybe from their own community, where they can fact check the hour and a half of television we've just watched. That, just putting that out there, manifesting that. They
0: did, that's that's how they just caught that guy who murdered his wife, or they think murdered his wife in Orange County. They actually did a podcast. Oh, yeah? Because the, the trail had kind of gone cold, and so they did a podcast... Asking for people, yeah, to, talking about the case and asking for information from people, and they caught him. That's great.
1: That's great. Citizens, citizens, on whatever. I'm, I'm gonna. I keep forgetting to tell you this, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna wedge it into our podcast. The Citizen app. Are you familiar with the Citizen app? I'm not. Okay. Well, rather than calling me on the phone and asking me to go check Twitter when you hear a siren, which I'm happy to do, but I'm trying to use Twitter less in general. There's an app called Citizen that will tell you. It has your location, and then red dots on a map around you where there is police activity that's gone down in like the last, I don't know, 24 to 48 hours. You can basically find out what's that siren about, or why why is that helicopter circling, which is the thing that happens here in LA. Throwing that out there also for our yeah, it's listeners. a problem
0: here because there's so much that goes on. Almost they, you know, only so much of it can make the news. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: All right. Well. That was that was a
0: so next time
1: next time it's a 2020 episode with friends like this with friends like these. these. Um, if you go to the ABC website, you got sc- to into the t- their page for 2020. You got to scroll down a little bit. It's like three or four rows down. Um, it's a fairly recent episode. It's also available on Hulu if you have a subscription. Um, 2020 is available there,
0: or get a subscription, or
1: get a subscription
0: because why not? And, you know, who knows? Maybe who one knows? day there'll be other shows on there. There might be another
1: see. show on there soon. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, you have listened to another episode of Christopher and Eric. I'm Christopher. And I'm Eric. And we are Christopher and Eric. We do it different every time. I'd, we're beta testing. We're going to have to work this out. We're beta testing. We're going to have to rehearse this like 30 times. Anyway. We're going to go argue about it over dinner. We're going to argue. I am hungry. I am too. (laughs) I'm hungry. All right. But Brandon's got to fix my remote first. All right. Too many personal details. The tea is kicking in. Until our next episode, I'm Christopher.
0: And I'm Eric. Thanks for listening.